destruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. This is God's word. Thank you, Aiden. I'm looking to see if anyone took John up on that offer. I think it's pretty much the same crew as before. Uh, Great to see everybody this morning. My name is Charlie Dunn, along with John. I have the privilege of getting to uh, pastor this new neighborhood church in Lake Highlands. Hope everybody stayed uh, warm and safe over these last few days. We were especially glad in our home that the power stayed on, no pipes burst, no flooding. I don't know if any of you dealt with that last year. We did, so we were glad um, that we all made it through okay and glad that we're able to gather for worship this morning. Uh, If you've been with us for these last few weeks, you know that we have been in a teaching series called Letter to a New Church, and we're looking at Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. Uh, He was writing to this uh, church in the ancient Greek city known as Thessalonica. Uh, Most scholars think Paul wrote this letter about one year after founding this church, and so we've said that's really relevant for us because uh, we just celebrated one year as a new neighborhood church. Uh, But more than that, Paul says that in this very short amount of time, the church in Thessalonica, he says they actually became a model church. They became an exemplary church, the kind of church that other Greek churches could look to and say they're not perfect, They're, they're broken people like us, but in many ways that is what a church of Jesus Christ is supposed to be. And so we've been asking through this series, how can we as a new church increasingly grow in that direction? How can we become more of that kind of exemplary church? And each Sunday we've been looking at some of the ingredients, uh, some of the factors that seem to really contribute to that. Uh, And here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that Aidan read for us, uh, Paul shifts into really talking about how the Thessalonians were living out their Christian faith among their neighbors uh, publicly in the world in some very practical ways, uh, frankly, in some very countercultural ways, uh, ways that probably would have been mocked, that would have been ridiculed, uh, but eventually uh, became so attractive, so winsome, so compelling that these uh, practices actually began to sweep through the Roman Empire as more and more people became followers of Jesus. And so here in chapter 4, what Paul does is he says, if you want to live a life that's going to be pleasing to God, I want you to continue um, to have a really distinctive way that you approach your sexuality, your work, and death. And next Sunday, we're going to talk about work and death. Uh, But today, we're going to talk about sex. And for some of you, maybe that feels a little bit strange. Maybe that makes you a little bit uncomfortable to hear a sermon about sex. How do you think I feel as the one who (laughs) is preaching it? In in fact, my wife Brandy said to me, she said, when she heard the topic, she said, do you you really have to preach the whole sermon about sex? I mean, can't you kind of pair that with work? Maybe do half and half and not quite as much of a focus there. And I was tempted to do that. But, you know, the more that I thought about it, the more that I realized, no, we we, we actually do need to, to talk about this more. We need to devote a whole sermon to it. Maybe more than that for at least four reasons. Let me give them to you. First, we need to talk about sex because the Bible talks about sex, because Paul talks about sex. 
Right here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he devotes eight verses, and this is just one of the many places in the scriptures where he talks about this. And you know, you think about two chapters earlier in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, there Paul says um, that, that God has entrusted him with the word of God, and that his job then is not to speak so as to please men, but to speak so as to please God who tests our hearts. And you know, one of the advantages of preaching through a book in the Bible as we're doing is you can't kind of skip and, and, and jump and, and choose those kind of easier passages. You've got to deal with the harder passages as you come to them. And for me, as a recovering people pleaser, believe me, I would like to, to tell you more of what I think you might want to hear, what our culture might more want to hear, but my job as your pastor is not to tell you what I think you want to hear. My job is to tell you what God wants you to hear as he has revealed it in his word. So we need to talk about sex because the Bible talks about it. Secondly, we need to talk about it because a lot of churches don't. You know, one of my experiences is I counsel couples who are getting ready for marriage and we talk about how do you honor God with your, your sexuality in your marriage. Often they'll say to me, you know, this is the first time that I've been able to have a frank conversation about sex in a Christian context. And, and so as a result, over the years, because their church never talks about sex, they, they, they adopt this kind of perspective that, that sex must be bad, it must be dirty, it must be taboo or sort of off-limits, kind of just like a necessary evil to continue the existence of the human race. And people miss, they miss the fact that God created sex. It is good. It is a gift from God but when it's used in its right context. So we need to talk about it because a lot of churches don't. Thirdly, even if we were to not talk about sex in church, don't you know we're going to talk about it still? We're going to talk about it in our culture. We just watch the news, read the news. Just this last week I saw the University of Utah decided to shut down all of their Greek life, fraternities and sororities. Why? Because there was another allegation of, of a sexual assault. And, and we constantly hear about this in the news. Certainly we see it on our favorite TV shows. Did anybody know they, they recently added Seinfeld to Netflix? Um, it's been a long time since I've been able to watch Seinfeld. I love Seinfeld. It's like 30 years old now. And in some ways it seems like kind of a wholesome show in the sense that it's from the, the 1990s. But you watch Seinfeld and they're constantly talking about sex. Same is true for Friends, same is true for The Office or Parks and Recreation, these beloved shows, and the way that they talk about sex is very different from the way in which the Bible approaches and talks about sex, isn't it? And our culture talks about sex in a way where it would say, look, sex is just another appetite, just like hunger. So if you're hungry, you eat. If you're feeling sexy, you have sex as long as it's consensual. That's the perspective that we get in our culture. That's the perspective that we get on TV. So if we don't talk about sex in church, we're going to end up by default probably just absorbing our culture's perspective on sex. Or even if we know what God says about our sexuality, we're going to look at it as, as kind of archaic and restrictive and backward, maybe even somewhat laughable if we don't spend time seeing the beauty and the wisdom behind God's design for our sexuality. So there's a third reason. Here's the fourth reason. We need to talk about sex because our sexuality actually has a great deal to do 
with our relationship with God. And you see that here in 1 Thessalonians. Paul's talking about our sanctification. That is how you become holy in the way that God is holy. How you become the glorious man and woman that God made you to be. And as he's talking about that growth in godliness, he immediately says we need to talk about the way we use our sexuality. Did you notice verse 5? He says those who reject God's design for their sexuality, why do they do so? They do not know God. Verse 8, he says whoever rejects this teaching doesn't reject man. He rejects God who gives the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says every other sin that we commit, and sometimes people say all sins are equal. That's, that's only true in a sense. All sins are equally sinful against God. But he says every other sin that we commit is outside of our body. But he who sins sexually sins against his own body. In, in some ways, it, it, it's, it's a sin against our very union with Jesus. The way that we use our sexuality doesn't just affect our bodies. It affects our souls on a deep and profound level. Sex is not mundane. It's not ordinary. It's holy. It's sacred. That's why people are prone to, to worship it, to act as if sexual ecstasy is sort of the greatest thing you can experience in life. It's why sex was often part of the pagan ritual worship in the temples in the city of Thessalonica. God created sex for, for a holy purpose. And it deeply affects our relationship with God, the way we use our sexuality. So for all of these reasons, we need to have a conversation about sex. So I want to do so under three headings. Here are three questions I want to ask today. And we're really just scratching the surface. Here are the questions. First, what is God's design for our sexuality? Secondly, why is that his design for our sexuality? In other words, why does sex function best? when it's practiced within God's design for it? And then thirdly, where do we get the power? Where do we get the desire to live within God's design for our sexuality? So we're going to walk through these three questions together. So here we go. First, what is God's design for our sexuality? And we see that really in two aspects here in 1 Thessalonians 4. So verse 3, Paul says, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should become more and more holy, more and more like Jesus. Then he says that you should avoid sexual immorality and that each of you should learn to live with your own wife. Now, some translations might say that each of you learn to control your own body, but you'll notice there's a, a footnote that says learn to live with your own wife or take a wife. That's the more literal translation. And what Paul is saying here is consistent with what you see taught all throughout the pages of Scripture, that when it comes to our sexuality, basically there are two alternatives. Either we are using our sexuality within the context of a whole life commitment, within the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman, or he says we're engaging in sexual immorality. And that word that's translated sexual immorality is the Greek word porneia. It's the word from which we get our English word pornography. It's a general term that's pretty encompassing of uh, all sorts of ways that we can misuse and abuse our sexuality. But Paul here in the Bible, frankly, is pretty clear that, that really there are just two alternatives 
when it comes to our sexuality. Either we are expressing it in the context of a covenant marriage, or we're engaging in sexual immorality. God created sex not for before marriage, not for outside of marriage, but for inside of marriage. And you may hear that, and maybe you don't like that. Maybe that offends you. Maybe that seems laughable to you. It does to many in our culture. Some people in our culture would say that's even psychologically repressive to believe that that sex is only for for marriage in that way. Maybe you reject that view, but, but this is not a matter of interpretation, friends. I mean, look all throughout Christian history. Look across all of the major Christian denominations. This has been very clear from the start of Christianity. It's clear all throughout the Bible. God created sex for marriage between a man and a woman. So there's the design, the first aspect. But, but there's more to it. Notice this. Paul says, actually, it's possible to be married. It's possible to be married and yet to still be missing God's design for our sexuality. Did you notice that? He says in verses four through five, he says that that each of you should learn to live with your wife in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. By the way, if anybody has ever heard the teaching in the context of a church that that everything goes in marriage or anything goes in marriage, um, that is not true. That is absolutely not true. There can still be sexual abuse uh, within the context of marriage because what Paul teaches us here is is that within uh, any any marriage relationship, really, there are are two ways um, to approach sex. I guess this is true whether you're you're married or not, two ways to approach sex. And, And look at these two terms with me. He contrasts these two terms, honor versus lust. And here's the thing, when when sex is an expression of lust, well, then it tends to be a way to use the other person for your own pleasure. It tends to dehumanize, tends to objectify the other person when sex is an expression of lust versus when sex is an expression of honor. It's a way to love, uh, to cherish, uh, to value, to build up the other person. And, and, And typically... When sex is an expression of lust, people get hurt in a lot of different ways. Paul says in verse 6, in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. People get hurt when sex is primarily an expression of lust. And I imagine in this room, we could all probably attest to that at some level. For all of us, there's, there's some brokenness. And when it comes to our own sexual history and the way that we've used our sexuality, maybe you have been hurt by somebody else. Maybe you've hurt someone else. Maybe you've hurt yourself. Often when, when, when sex is an expression of lust, it can lead to sexual abuse. When sex is an expression of lust, it can lead to infidelity and adultery in a marriage that can just tear apart a, a family. When sex is an expression of lust, it can lead somebody to only be able to really relate with a picture or video, uh, not with a real person. And here's the 14-year-old boy or here's the 45-year-old woman coming back again and again to pornography thinking this time I'll find that intimacy and fulfillment and joy. 
that they walk away only with a sense of shame or numbness? When sex is an expression of lust, it it can lead to sexual assault or rape. Certainly, we're familiar with all of the, the, the human trafficking. You know, there are more people enslaved today than there have ever been at any other time in human history. And a lot of that is, is sex trafficking. Paul says people get hurt when sex is an expression of lust, not an expression of honor. But you know who especially gets hurt are women. I mean, that was true in Paul's day. It's especially true in, in Paul's day, but it's true in our day today as well, as those who are, are maybe the more vulnerable gender. But it was especially true in Paul's day. That's why maybe it seems as if Paul is especially speaking here to men. He says, learn to live with your own wife. And in many ways, Paul is speaking to men. Um, Let let me tell you something. I think we get this idea um, today that that we live in like the most sexually liberated culture, that we're progressive, that we've come beyond what people used to believe. We've been through one sexual revolution in the 60s. We're kind of going through another one in our culture today. And we get this idea we're the most sort of liberated people when it comes to sexuality. That's not true. Um, There were fewer boundaries when it came to sexuality in Paul's day uh, in the Greek and Roman culture, at least if you were a man. Uh, For men in the city of Thessalonica, it was common to have multiple sexual partners. Um, So a man might have a wife, and she would be the person um, who would bear his children. Maybe she would manage the finances of the household. Maybe he would marry her for social status. Uh, But then he might also have a mistress, like a girlfriend, somebody that he would connect with more emotionally or intellectually and, and enjoy spending time with. And of course, he'd have sex with her. And then there might also be concubines. Uh, or female slaves, or male slaves. Uh, homosexuality was actually far more prevalent in Paul's day than it is in our own day, and these would be people that, that a man might just um, act out of complete lust just for his own sexual pleasure, have relationship uh, with them. And so a, a man in Paul's day might have all these different sexual partners, and he would not be responsible to any of them. And so what Paul is saying here is he's saying, look, brothers, we are done with that. He says, no, you're going to have one wife. You're going to have one sexual partner. And this one woman, she is going to be your your, your sexual partner. She's going to be the mother of your children. She's going to be the person that you look to for companionship and and relationship, your most trusted counselor, your best friend. You're going to, to find all of that in the same person. Do you see how that honors women? Do you see how that lifts up women? And he says the way to approach sex in that relationship is not out of lust, but it's a way to honor and to build up. Really, sex is just a picture of saying, as I've given myself to you in all these other ways, so too I also give myself to you physically. So there's God's design for our sexuality. But some of you are asking the question, now why? Why would God just create sex for the context of marriage? He's given us these strong sexual desires. Why would he restrict them in that way? Another way to ask it is, why does sex work best within the context of marriage? You know, that was a question that I didn't feel like I heard answered a lot. You know, when I would go to to church, maybe as a high schooler, I would hear people say, you know, sex is for marriage. But I never heard anybody really explain why. So, So maybe Paul doesn't hit on this quite as much in this passage, but I want to speak to this Briefly, why did God create sex for marriage? And whether you believe he did or not, I think all of us probably should be able to recognize that sex is powerful. It sends a really powerful message. 
But what is that powerful message that it says? It's a way for a man to say to a woman or a woman to say to a man, I give myself to you completely. In in absolute vulnerability, I am giving myself to you. I I remember when I was in college, uh, I had a roommate who really liked this girl. And eventually, they started sleeping together. Which, as his roommate, which was kind of um, awkward and uncomfortable. I don't know if any of you have have dealt with that shared dorm room experience before. But um, he started sleeping with this girl. And... And, and, and he started to, to think to himself that they were dating. He started to think that they were in a relationship. Now, why did he think that? I'll tell you why. Because that is the message that sex absolutely sends. It's a way of saying, I'm uniting my life to yours. In, in many ways, neurochemically, that's what's happening. All of this oxytocin is being you know, released, which, which, which creates a bond. It creates trust. It creates the sense of relationship. That's the message that sex has been created to send. I'm like binding my life to yours. But here's the thing. When you send that message, but it's not rooted in reality, you haven't actually committed your life to the other person it can be really dangerous. It can be really destructive, really harmful. You know, an illustration I've used before, I'm going to use it again today, is in in the TV show The Office. You know, there's this scene where where David Wallace calls Michael Scott, Michael picks up the phone, and David says, is everything okay? Michael says, yeah, everything's fine. David says, well, you, you texted me, you know, 911, emergency, call immediately. And Michael's like, oh, yeah, I just figured out nobody would answer or, you know, respond to my messages if I didn't send that. And people always call when I text that. And, and David Wallace's reaction is like, are you kidding me? And, and you see, that's dangerous, right? It's like the boy who cried wolf. If you send a really powerful message, but it's not rooted in reality, that can be harmful. It can be dangerous. And, and that's absolutely true. When it, when it comes to sex, if you send that message, I'm, I'm giving my life to you. But, it, but it's not rooted in reality. You haven't made that commitment. You haven't promised to be there to comfort and to care for in sickness and in health or for better or worse. You haven't promised to give up your independence. You haven't promised to be loyal only to them. You haven't promised if you get bored not to move on to somebody else. Actually, actually it's not loving. It's actually pretty selfish to send that message when it's not actually rooted in reality, and it leads to harmful consequences. You know, my my roommate, he thought they were dating. He thought they were in a relationship. Turns out she was not interested in that. She just wanted the sex. She was just interested in in, in that, that pleasure and enjoyment from him, and I remember when he found that out, he was depressed for weeks. He wouldn't go to class, wouldn't go to tennis practice. It took a long time for him to get over that. I, I, I've talked to, to young adults over the years. I think of one who, who shared with me. He said there was this girl that, that he dated in high school. He said they told each other they loved each other in high school. You know, they, they were planning one day to get married. And so they started sleeping together. But eventually their lives drifted. They started going in different directions. And she wanted to break up with him. When she did, it absolutely tore him apart. Why? Because that was the message that was sent. That through that, that sexual experience, it's why sometimes people stay in harmful relationships. You say, why don't you get out of that relationship? Because, because emotionally, 
Even neurochemically, they feel the sense of bond and connection that sex creates. And frankly, even if you take the sex in the city approach, and you say, sex is mundane, it's not that big of a deal, it's just another appetite to fulfill. Why do we have to have any strings attached? Why can't we just enjoy it for what it is? If you do that, what happens is that, is that, is that sex actually starts losing some of its intended purpose. It gets dulled. It loses some of its power to really send that message, and it creates all sorts of issues of, of mistrust and jealousy. Often I'll tell couples when they're getting married, look, if sex wasn't for marriage before you got married, what makes you think it will be after you get married? And, and there can be issues of, of jealousy and mistrust then that, that come from that. And maybe you're starting to see some of the wisdom behind God's design. One other thing to add, Paul says not just um, that, that sex is meant to bind us together. He says, actually, in marriage and in singleness, I would say it's for our sanctification. You know, sex in marriage is good. It is a gift from God. It is wonderful. But, but it's not perfect, right? And marriage isn't perfect. Any of you who are married know that marriage is hard. Sex in marriage can be hard. Because the reality of marriage is God brings two broken people together who are making this commitment to love each other and to give themselves fully to each other. I like how Philip Yancey puts it. He says that we live with ordinary people, men and women who get bad breath and body odor and unruly hair, who have bad moods and embarrass us. We live with people who need an endless supply of compassion and forgiveness. And he says, such is the allure of sex. It offers to bring us into a relationship that offers to teach us far more of what we need, namely sacrificial love. As you say, I'm committed to this person. I'm gonna give myself to this person, not just physically, but in every other aspect of life as well. You are learning sacrificial love in marriage. You're learning the character of Jesus. By the way, that's true for singleness as well. If you say, look, I'm going to grasp for God and my fulfillment in him, not in sex, and I'm going to look at other people not for what I can get from them sexually, but how I can serve them, you too are learning sacrificial love. You're learning the character of Jesus. Jesus, who, by the way, was single. Paul was single too. Jesus, who never had sexual intimacy in his life. And yet, would we say Jesus didn't live a fulfilled life? No. And so I hope you can see this is some of the wisdom behind God's design for our sexuality. Maybe you're persuaded of that, maybe you're not. But, but I hope for those of you who are followers of Jesus, you would say, even if I don't understand why God made sex for marriage, I am persuaded that Jesus is Lord. And therefore, if, like the Thessalonians, I want to please God with my life, where do I get the power? to more and more live according to God's design for my sexuality. And by the way, if you're struggling in this area uh, with sexual temptation, um, maybe, maybe pornography, I, I do just want to give you the encouragement. Paul would not have written this to the Thessalonians if he thought this was easy. They're, they're living well for Jesus in all sorts of different ways. Paul would not have needed to give them this encouragement if he thought this was easy. It's hard. It's challenging. But if you say, I want the power to live this out, where do you get that power? Because willpower, frankly, is not enough. Discipline is important. Good, good safeguards, practices for your internet searches, those can be helpful. Accountability groups certainly can be really helpful. But at the end of the day, it's a heart issue, isn't it? Where do you get the power to want to live in obedience to God's design for your sexuality? Verses 5 and verse 8. Let me just hit on these and I'll close. 
Verse 5, Paul says the reason why the pagans are, are, are rejecting God's design for their sexuality, he says, is because they do not know God. They do not know God. Now, you may say, well, gosh, what about pastors? What about Christian celebrities? What about these people who have these affairs? And does that mean they didn't know God? I, I can't speak to that. But what I can say is that you cannot simultaneously be rejecting God's design for your sexuality and living consciously in the light of an intimate, personal, fulfilling relationship with him. He says they do not know God. Think about this with me, friends. Why was Jesus' first miracle turning water into wine at a wedding? Why, why was Jesus able to live a deeply fulfilling life, though he never had sexual intimacy? And the answer is because, you know, sexual union, even in, in, in marriage and the intimacy that comes from that, at best, it was only meant to be a picture, to, to be a vague shadow of the kind of, of, of fulfillment and love and committed intimacy that God longs to bring into our lives and that he brings into our lives through Jesus. And so the real secret, the real power to, to being able to vigorously pursue God's design for your sexuality is to know the ravishing love of Jesus for you. A, a love that pursues you, a love that is so committed to you, a, a love that, that forgives you, that cherishes you, a love that would die for you, a love that did die for you, a love that took all of your punishment in your place, a, a, a love that, that is able to, to cleanse us from all of our guilt and our shame, especially related to sexual sin. And a love even that, that, that changes us from the inside out. Did you notice what Paul says in verse 8? He says, whoever rejects God's design for their sexuality doesn't reject man. They reject God who gives the spirit. You know, God has given you your, his Holy Spirit if you are in Jesus. God doesn't say, I'm going to wait for you to get your sexual act together. Then I want a relationship with you. No, he says, I am going to get on your level. I'm going to enter into you. I'm going to give you the very power and life and cleansing that you need for renewal and change in your life. Friends, do you believe, do you know the satisfying love of Jesus for you? Take that more and more into your heart, especially when you're struggling with sexual temptation. And remember that the Holy Spirit lives within you. God has given you all the power that you need more and more to live to please God in every part of your life, but including our sexuality. So let me pray as we come to the Lord's table together this morning.